Good afternoon, I'm John Ewing with Spirit Lake Wellness, and welcome to our podcast on mindfulness. I am here with Dave Nelson, and today's subject is uh, controversial because a lot of people have begun to misuse the term mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Dave, I was wondering if you could tell us what are some of the common misconceptions about mindfulness? Well, one of the, the biggest ones that I tend to see is that people are using mindfulness to go and get a certain state of mind. You know, to get calm or to even prevent pain. Um, they're, they're using it, again, the, the primary way they look at it is the getting. They have an eye on a goal, an objective. And uh, mindfulness in its purest practice is goalless. It has no goal. It's simply being present with whatever arises in the here and the now. So I see a lot of uh, therapists, um, you know, using it almost as a replacement for, like, um, medication or other kinds of uh, relaxation techniques even though relaxation is part of mindfulness it's not a relaxation technique it's about simply being a pure aware of what is going on and embracing it all with what we call an equal eye with an equanimity okay um, so along the lines of uh, uh, what uh, an old-fashioned definition for mindfulness mm -hmm. was to uh, pay attention or to remember. Mm -hmm. uh, so is mindfulness then, uh, as you're using the term, does it mean to reflect and remember things? Uh, no. No. Okay, my, well, the practice that I, that I come from or the lineage that I come from is actually a Soto Zen and a lot of study. And so our basic practice is simply being present with what is here, now. And we're not trying to generate any special state of mind. Um, there's no reflection. There's simply a, um, a refocusing of the mind back into what is happening now. It's uh, very similar to um, driving a car. You have a focal point, which would be the road. And while you're driving down the road, there's scenery goes by. And um, your job, well, we come back to the road. You can't wa keep watching the scenery which would be our monkey mind kind of thing. The scenery is our, our thoughts, feelings, sense perceptions. Um, and when we, when we get taken away by the scenery, our job is to come back to the road. And those of us you know, who are you know, in uh, the Northern Hemisphere here, in the, uh, especially in Wisconsin in the winter, it's amazing how our power of concentration stays on the road when it's really icy. It's how quickly you can sort of let go of the scenery and stay focused on the road. And this is sort of a, this is a, real, that's a basic good mindful practice. You, you're taking the road as it is, where it is. Whatever scenery goes by, that's the scenery that goes by. Okay. So rather than uh, mindfulness being remembering something mm -hmm. and thinking about it, uh, some people I've noticed think of uh, mindfulness as a state of focus. Mm -hmm. um, but is that what, what you're talking about, where you focus on the road ahead? You focus, but it's not, you, you know, it's like most of us who drive, you, you can't remain focused on the road all the time. Your mind naturally wanders, and that's okay. Mindfulness is, is, is being able to be aware of your mind has wandered, and then to return. It is interesting when we repeat a stimulation, mm -hmm. the 
signal attenuates and it seems to disappear. Mm -hmm. For example, if you run your finger slowly down a screen, at first it feels bumpy, mm -hmm. but then as soon as your finger is used to it, it feels smooth. Mm -hmm. Then when you take your finger away, it will uh, tingle a little bit from the bumps that are no longer there. Mm -hmm. um, so if we focus our eye very intently on one spot of an image, what we find then is that that spot, if we don't move our eyes, will disappear. Mm -hmm. Is uh, Does this play a role in the mindfulness that you're trying to describe? In a way, what we're looking at is as you're focusing and re-engaging re in the present moment. And uh, within most mindful practices, especially within Zen practices, we use the, uh, the, the, the belly. The, it's called the hara or tantian in the Asian traditions. Um, hara from Japan and tantian is Chinese. But it's that, that, that center of gravity between the belly, right below the belly button a couple inches and a couple inches in. And our job is to follow our breath down into the belly. And that's the focal point. And what happens is as the mind begins to wander, you, you become more skilled at catching the mind before you're totally lost in a daydream. So the mind will tend to, your focus tends to hover around your center. And then the watcher actually begins to disappear. There's just watching, but there's no watcher. I see. You know, it's sort of like when we get engrossed in a movie or a book you forget you're actually reading the book or watching the movie. And he, but, but this is not the goal of mindful practice either. It's just sort of something that happens. And many things will come and go while you're practicing. And one thing, I, I many, many years ago, I was fairly new into Zen practice. I had an unusual experience of a, a very strong white light just hitting me right between the eyeballs and just about knocking me off my meditation cushion. And so I went, later I went and talked to my teacher and I asked him, well, what is this? What's going on? You know, and he goes, it's just a different state of consciousness. None is any better than any other. Just do not get attached to it. Do not become aversive to it. Simply, that's what came up. That's what was there. Now it's gone. Now you're here. And so it's always a returning back to what we are engaged in in this particular moment. And so... Where I'm seeing the, I call it the common mistake of mindful practice, especially in the therapeutic world, is we're trying to create a state of mind. We're trying to create calmness. And um, as we know, if we run, want any growth really in the brain, we have to actually stimulate discomfort. And that's we have to take people to that edge of discomfort. Then their brain begins to change. But we're changing them by learn, teaching them to respond differently rather than react. Rather than reacting off a of fight, flight, or freeze, our mind is now, our brain is now responding off of what we've chosen to do, off of simply being present. So when um, you poke a worm or uh, see an enemy, uh, it will often withdraw and mm -hmm. freeze. Mm -hmm. And humans still do this when they get scared mm -hmm. or when something startles them. And sometimes you can see an, a sharp intake of the breath, a gasp. Mm -hmm. they go, <gasps> and um, so the opposite of that tension is to breathe out and mm -hmm. to relax. 
Mm-hmm. Is this what mindfulness is? Yeah, in a more formal practice, you'll, you'll be able to be aware of that reaction inside yourself. You feel the fight. You feel the flight. Because when you're, when you're sitting or standing um, for long periods of time, actually when you start off, you know, if you just meditate for a few minutes a day, it's pretty comfortable. It actually brings up comfortable states, which is, which is important to encourage practice. But over time, as you extend your sitting period from up, like maybe up to 30 minutes to 40 minutes, and it starts to become very uncomfortable, which then kicks in fight, flight, or freeze. You don't want to sit quiet. You don't want to sit still. You don't want to be there because it's really uncomfortable. And that's when the practice begins. That's when real mindfulness happens as you become, start to becoming aware of all these arisings, as we call them. Your fears, the flights, the fights, the I don't want to be here. You start to struggle inside your mind, but yet you're maintaining your body stable. And so now you're responding differently by staying here. And by allowing all the fears, all the flights, just be there. And they will disappear. So our thoughts tend to uh, be categorized roughly into approach and avoid. So Correct. the arisings that you're talking about are to avoid? To avoid, right. Your knees may start to ache. Your back starts to ache. So you want to shift your position. And if you learn to sit, if you just allow that discomfort to be there, eventually it disappears. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we feel approach. We, are, we're told we want to approach. We, we like those, those white lights inside the head and, and the colors and the, the, uh, the vibrant altered states of consciousness that are really closer to bliss. And we really don't like the discomfort, the knees aching, the back aching, you know, getting headaches. Um, you know, uh, fear comes up. I mean, there's a lot of things that come up from deep within yourself when you practice mindfulness for extended periods of time. It's almost in some ways a sensory deprivation kind of experience. And so the mind really starts to bring up everything and you feel the fight or flight. So you're really beginning engaging in watching it. And while you're watching it though, you return back to the breath. You allow it, you recognize its existence, but then you come back to your breath and to your belly. Until your mind gets taken away by discomfort or comfort again, then you come back. So whether we, so we so it's a very important not to be chasing after comfort or running from discomfort. Okay. Simply being present and seeing both with equanimity, with an equal eye, and knowing that they bo- both will pass. So, um, on the one hand, our memories and our beliefs about the world around us mm-hmm. form a map, yeah. mm-hmm. and some people see meditation and thinking as working on their map and Mm -hmm. uh, patrolling their map and uh, making sure that they understand all of the alleys and turns and uh, some people will then even find themselves rehearsing various situations like that thing Mm -hmm. they should have said to that so-and-so that upset them Mm -hmm. Um, what do you, what do you think about this map and working on the map that some people think of as meditation and thinking? Well, that, that has therapeutic value. But the, um, in terms of a, a pure practice, it's not mindfulness. It's reflection. And um, a pure, pure mindful practice is simply being aware that you're running the, these maps through your mind 
through your brain or wherever we're going to locate them, um, and then simply returning back to breath, returning back to your center, and, and living from your belly, as we call it. So would it be fair to say that some people think of the self as a collection of memories about their goals and aspirations mm -hmm. and um, that mindfulness helps people to separate from that sort of map of who they think they are? Yes, exactly. You begin to see that that map of who we think we are is actually a false sense of self. It's simply a, a, a mind map. It has no real reality other than something that's passing through your stream of consciousness. And so, oh, go ahead. so these things that we think about then uh, may have usefulness, mm -hmm. they may be illusion, they mm -hmm. uh, all have some degree of reality or illusion? Well, yeah, they do. I mean, you know, some thoughts are, are you know, more, I guess, help us become better people. You know, we want to focus on more positivity and, and, and to focus on um, compassion. Um, kindness and, and working in those directions. But that will come up. What's, what's, what's really nice about mindful practice is a lot of the, oh, our, our delusions, the only term I have, tend to drop away. And our purest nature, the, the faith within a Buddhist practice or Zen practice is that our pure nature is, is pure. I mean, our, our, you know, our original nature is very pure. It's like a diamond. And um, it is very compassionate. It's very kind. And so as we sit, we, all the fears and angers and aversions would drop away. There's nothing special you need to do. They simply drop away like leaves off the tree. And, uh, and as we sit, you know, we actually we go, we're like the tree. The leaves will drop off and then we become bare naked. And there's a little bit of a, um, almost a, a sense of death. And, but then if you sit, you stay sitting spring comes and we grow a new life and that's when the compassion comes up and you really start to feel your true your truer self so many long-term and, and in long-term meditators you know they're very compassionate very kind people and because they, they've learned that all this this other stuff that they used to think was them has dropped away and um but it's, and it's an ongoing oh, uh, practice of a formal time of sitting or standing and then also a daily practice of, of you know your daily um, routine of, of engaging in the daily routine of what you're doing am I washing dishes or you know doing a podcast or am I doing you know drinking coffee you know, focusing on those things I'm doing in this immediacy um, one of the things that my teacher one of the earliest teachings I learned from him that made me my brain hurt was um, was I was doing we were doing a, a retreat. It was a couple of days of a, a retreat, and uh, they do what's called a Dharma talk, which is a, like a sermon. And um, and he said it doesn't make any difference if you understand what I'm about to say, because it's not so much important that you understand. It's more important that you learn how to listen. It is in the listening, not the understanding. And that made me really scratch my head, you know, being a therapist, you know, we're in, you know, that's our job is to listen. So I really pondered that quite a bit. And um, it took me a lot of years to understand, up to my own understanding of how just simply to be a listener. And I do not have to understand. Understanding will show up. 
and it's learning to trust the process of, of, of the universe as it unfolds its stance. So what uh, sort of uh, stages or process did you go through to learn mindfulness? Um, oh, probably back. I've always been interested in, in uh, mindful practices. I mean, I started you know, uh, Okinawan Karate back in 1969. And um, a lot of our practices are, we started off with meditation. And a lot of the uh, kata, the forms that you do, um, the, like the dance forms, are basically old school uh, forms of uh, energy exercise called qigong or kiko, and uh, it, to bring up energy. And so that was my introduction to mindfulness. And then uh, around 1980, I forgot, 87, 88, I was able to um, uh, begin studying with a formal uh, Zen master, you know, trained out of the Soto Shu in Japan. And he was living in all places of Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> and it's really funny. Uh, the style uh, is called Soto Zen. Uh, he always calls it Farmer Zen. Because we just sit and watch the corn grow. We don't try to make the corn grow by pulling on it. And so many people practice mindfulness or out there pulling the corn, trying to make it grow. Yeah. And we just watch it grow and we trust nature. We trust the, the process of simply being present. That everything is, is working in a, in a wonderful design, a wonderful dance. And we just have to basically just be present with it. And some of the research I've been reading on, on mindfulness and the forms of Qigong, how just simply really doing nothing, the brain does begin to rewire itself for happiness. You know, various, various parts of the brain just start to get thicker, cortical regions of the brain, and you start to feel really, really happy. And I, I have to admit, I, I'm a fairly happy individual. And um, if you had known me 30 to 40 years ago, I probably was not. In fact, that when I was 16 years old, they actually had me on, a, uh, on Valium and an antipsychotic wow. for, for lots of anxiety. Very, a very high, strong worry. Um, now it's like that, that David Nelson's gone. And uh, it's it's and, but I, I attribute it to mindful practice, and so it's been a um a lot it's been a journey of, of many years for me probably forty years forty some years. So looking back at that uh, old self that was mm -hmm. anxious and worried, mm -hmm. um, what was the what was sustaining that? What kept that going? What did you stop doing that? The, or did you just emerge and start doing other things? Um, I started doing new things. I, I, the medication, intuitively, I said, this doesn't work. I'm just drooling at school, you know, I'm not even getting anything out of school. I was anxious about um, schoolwork. Um, I was always a very, very good student. And um, uh, my sophomore year, they, um, I tested out really high on a lot of things, like I was really smart or something. So they put me in a bunch of senior classes. And I just didn't really want to do that. <laughs> and I was having a lot of anxiety and failing. And so I got into this loop of not wanting to go to school, high anxiety. And um, so um, you know, being a book junkie, um, again, there's no internet way back in the you know, 70s, um, I found a book actually on hypnosis, self-hypnosis, in the little public library that I, I uh, would uh, visit frequently and learn how to do just simple relaxation. And I started videotaping my own uh, hypnosis sessions. 
And along with my karate practice, I've really started to get into understanding how the mind works and how it doesn't work and being able to observe and become a real strong student of my internal world. Um, and that was, even, uh, even when I went to uh, graduate school, um, this is about 79, I uh, did my master's thesis on Zen meditation and the prevention of professional burnout. And uh, there was very, little, very, very little research on uh, Zen meditation at that time other than just it slows down respiration and helps people feel good. Nothing like the, you know, the, the really neat neuroscience we have now. But just intuitively, I knew this, was work, this would work. It makes you feel more refreshed, makes every moment brand new. And um, it's, uh, eh, it, it does help quite a bit. So my journey is just take. I'm sort of rambling now, but it's just sort of taken on this, this evolution of, of meeting people uh, over the years that would um, just give me a different look at, look at things. Uh, from various uh, Kung Fu and Qigong masters that I would work with. Um, that would show me different ways to stand, um, even with some Tai Chi masters, various even karate people. Uh, then my Zen teacher, though, was a very powerful influence. He was very, very, very grounded, and uh, he's not considered a master for nothing. The, the man is ex extraordinary. And um, um, I was very fortunate to work with him for eight years. So before I moved back to Wisconsin, but mindfulness really is just simply about being present, and it's it's it's, it's a very simple practice and concept, but it does take quite a bit of discipline. What things what things interfere with uh, mindfulness? <clears throat> oh, just you know, chasing. Um, actually, there's a we have a saying in Zen is about uh, fools fetter themselves with goals, and ah, yes, and so. I, I sort of look at it as like when we start really studying a lot of, I mean, for such a goal-oriented um, culture, that you, what's your goal? Where are you going? We're almost addicted to compulsive destination obsession. And uh, I sort of tell people, mindful, uh, people who, um, if you think about a football player, okay, you got a halfback running out of the backfield, and the quarterback is fading back and, and throws him the ball. And just before the ball gets there, he turns his head, and most people know, yeah, they, he drops the ball, because he's focused on his goal, not where he's at. So before you can even score a touchdown, you have to catch the ball. So mindfulness is about maintaining your eye on the ball and not turning your head upstream. You have a, a direction. We have a direction of where we're going, but we don't have a goal that we have to get there. We have to keep our eye where we're at. When you catch the ball, you used to run towards the end zone. You're never guaranteed a touchdown, but at least you've caught the ball. Right. You know, and so we tend to, the biggest obstacle is people are always turning their head upstream too far. And they're so focused on it. And that, that gets in the way because it can't be in, you're in two places at once. The mind is now two, dual, it's not one. You can't be here and there at the same time. And when your mind is so focused on a goal in the future, and then when you can't get there, there's, there you start to get frustrated, irritated, irrita irritable, anxious. May start drinking more, doing more drugs, because you can't get to where you want to be. And so once you learn to stop, and learn to be centered and grounded where you at, where you are at, whether it's comfortable or not, the universe opens up to you. So would you say then that uh, many people? 
confuse their goals for how they want to feel. Yes. And that a goal might be a means of getting to where you want to feel or how you want to mm -hmm. feel, but that very often people confuse the goal with how they want to feel. Yeah, and they're not feeling what they're actually feeling now. And so they're, they're, they're gonna, get, they get frustrated and then, well, I'm not perfect, so then they quit. They relapse, they go backwards. We, um, we, I'll never make it. They get into that all or nothing thinking. There's nothing wrong, you know, from my point of view, of having a, a direction, having an, um, an aspiration. And I will, I will even, excuse me, take people and um, have them envision where they want to be and bring up the feelings of how great that would feel. And then bring that back into this moment. Just, just come to touch that, and that's okay. But now come back and be present here. And so you, you can get a taste of it, but when you start to really chase, that's when... You're no longer mindful. So working on your goal and your ideal as uh, some kind of uh, uh, treasure that you're going to polish and refine and mm. improve is not mindfulness? No. Mindfulness is just knowing that right here, right now is, is it. Why is this, what keeps people from grasping this? Because you can't grasp it. <laughs> as soon as you, you, you label it, it's not it. You know, the map is never the territory. So, <clears throat> would it be fair to say then that our uh, memories and maps of uh, reality and our goals uh, are largely illusion? Yeah. <coughs> they are. They're simply... Um, so we call it uh, having the uh, head on top of our own. We create a whole world inside. We create a whole new world that's only inside of our head. And uh, the real world is simply what we're touching, feeling, connecting to in this particular moment. So is it fair then to say that mindfulness is to recognize that our thoughts and memories and ideas are just dreams? You can say that. You know, and then to embrace it. We're not going to try and get rid of them. Many times people will bring up these ideas. I'll say, well, no, this is delusion. Well, i got to get rid of delusion. No, embrace your delusion. Bring it along with you. <laughs> because we tend to get into that of pushing away and chasing after again. I just was at you know, a workshop today, and they're talking about reflective listening and being uh, non-judgmental in your listening. My, I didn't bring this up, but it's like, well, how do you know you're being non-judgmental? Because as soon as you become aware of, of that, that's a judgment. So you can never have non-judgmental listening. There's only, I call it, uh, engaged listening, a soft engagement. And uh, we learn this in the martial arts, um, again, of, of, uh, uh, of not, it's not fighting and running. It's, it's an engagement with an individual. Maybe most people might relate to baseball, too. I, I played a lot of baseball as a young man, and uh, played a lot of shortstop, and when that ball is hit to you really hard on the ground, really fast, if you just stand there, the ball will play you, and odds are you'll miss the ball. But you have to attack the ball. You have to go at the ball, but you have to attack the ball with soft hands. You have to engage it and bring it to yourself. So we have to go in. We have to enter in, 
with soft hands, with soft engagement, with a softer heart, and then embrace everything, whether it's prickly or not, whether it's really hot, cold, whatever, and see it with equanimity, and then take it along with us while we're going where we're, we're going. And um, it makes life a lot easier. I have a, I have a simple little, I call it a little mantra or a cognitive reframe I have people use to help them re-engage in the moment throughout the day. And it's very simple. I'll be teaching this tomorrow at a, at a workshop too. It's, I simply have them acknowledge their current feeling state or mental state. For perhaps they're anxious. So I have them go, high anxiety. I want, I want them to talk to it. <laughs> high anxiety. And then come watch me. You want to invite it to come along with you while you're focusing on what am I doing right now. So I'd go, high anxiety, come watch me. Maybe I'm drinking some coffee. High anxiety, come watch me sip my coffee. You know, or highly depressed mood, come watch me open up my car door. Come watch me put on, you know, change a diaper. Come watch me clean a floor. Because what we're doing is we're acknowledging our current state. We're mindful of it, totally aware. We're not very comfortable with it. So we want to invite it. We don't want to fight or run. So come watch me. And then you're refocusing your mind on what is it that I'm actually in control of in this particular moment. And that begins also to rewire your brain. Because now you are not reactive off fight or flight. You are responsive off of a trained intelligent response, intelligent action. And you're engaging in the control. And the more and more you engage your focus on what you actually do control, the more in control you begin to feel. The anxiety, the depression, all these things just drop away like leaves off the tree. And you stay engaged in this moment and you start to feel more in control, happier. That's been my experience. The anxiety that I would feel, the, the, the massive headaches, the, gut, the um, heart palpitations, the gut wrenching, I mean, the back pain, I used to have a lot of back pain from fear. Um, it's just, that just all naturally just disappeared. And um, just through this process of being present moment by moment. Um, we're, a you know, we're very natural healing organisms. And uh, this may be a little bit of a stretch if I can talk about it a little bit is, is um, how, um, you know how when we get cut, okay, we, we, you know, if you get a cut on your hand, let's say, and uh, it starts to form a scab. The scab is the healing, you know, but it's itchy, it's irritable, it's really, we don't like it. <laughs> but what happens if we keep picking the scab? We don't heal. <laughs> so anxiety, depression, all of these things we consider problems are actually scabs of healing. And we keep picking them. So if we try to work on understanding our anxiety and the things that we're anxious about, mm -hmm. we're feeding it? Sometimes. If we're trying to get rid of the anxiety, there's nothing wrong with understanding it. But it's a matter of if you're trying to get rid of it. We do not control anxiety. You manage your response to anxiety. You do not control pain. We don't do pain management, anxiety management, or stress management. What we manage is our response to these things. Very similar to uh, weather patterns. We don't manage the weather. We manage our response to the weather. And the weather's always changing. So we have to con continue to learn how to respond in an intelligent fashion. 
So we're not a complete failure if it snows or rains. No, we're not a failure if it snows or rains. Yeah, we're not a failure if we yeah, if we get depressed or sad or, or anxious. These are just internal weather patterns. So if the Zen master is sad about something, has he failed? No, he's just sad. And this too shall pass. You know, he just puts on, a, he just maintains his steady routine. So in Zen practice, we maintain simple routines because that's, that gives structure to your life of grounding. So, hi there, come watch me, you know, do my routines. So, um, is there any value to acting like you're enlightened and peaceful? It can, it can help, but it's really fake. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, you, can, you can get caught up in, you know, the, being the spiritual egotist. You know, yeah, the you know, great wise one. Great wise one. And um, what, what what attracted me to my teacher was, I mean, he lived on uh, just whatever was donated to the temple, and he taught a few courses at, at a university. Um, but otherwise, he lived just off of what people donated. He lived a very simple, very frugal life. Um, we were not even allowed to call him uh, Roshi, which is, means master, or old man, is what it really means, but it's a title of you know, acknowledgement that, you know, we consider you our, our Zen master, and he refuses to allow us to call him that. And um, so he, he just, no, I'm just a simple priest kind of a routine. I'm just known, and that, that's his name. And uh, uh, so it, it helped to keep that avoid of that, you know, you know I'm the, the big, big hotshot guru, and uh, I, I tend to really, woo, when people will come up to me and say, oh, you're this and that, and I go, no, I'm not this or that. <laughs> You know, I'm just Dave, you know, kind of a routine. And uh, because that's, that, uh, I can take you away. That's the chasing after the, the ego kind of a part of ourselves can really get connected to that. And that's as, you know, dangerous as any drug. Yeah, I can see that that could be habit forming. Right. Um, so sometimes we run into people that when they start to ask questions about their ideas, <clears throat> excuse me, about reality, they start to question the importance of these things that they were uh, they were fascinated by and attached to. And it's almost like falling into a well, and some people are afraid that they will fall, uh, look too deeply and fall too far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. <laughs> people can get caught up in that as well. You can get caught up. Well, are you talking about like analysis paralysis kind of routine or just uh, the fear of falling? Well, sure. Some people like to have some central principle or idea around which they can construct their vision of the ideal world. And mm -hmm. then when those things are, are challenged, they get an uncomfortable floaty feeling like, mm -hmm. wait, maybe all of these things that I've defended and and aspired to are nothing mm -hmm. yeah they get some yeah that can be that can be bothersome to a lot of individuals mindfulness allows you to see that all those kinds of frameworks will come and go and uh, if, a, a proper mindful practice is understanding that any kind of framework you put together will eventually fail you know that's what's failed but change and so you will go through those what I call the winters when you feel like, woo, I don't know where I'm going. This is not very comfortable. This is very scary. But, uh, you know, as you maintain the, the practice, as we call it, maintain focusing on your daily routine, 
focusing on your daily, your formal routine of, of sitting and practicing, spring comes. You know, you get you begin get new insights, you get new structures, you get new leaves, and um, and then you 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 take these leaves and you and they grow into the summer where you can really learn from them. And then eventually these dry up and fall away as well, and then we start the routine again. So the idea then of mindfulness is not to turn loose of your ideas of reality or the idea that there is some uh, uh, useful ideas about reality, but to realize that they are just temporary, that they are Mm -hmm. ideas. Yep. And that you can't really stake your understanding of the world on any one thing. Yep. Yeah, the uh, Buddha, actually one of the precepts we take um, is not to become attached to any teaching, any framework, even this one. And it just sort of leaves you in this animated suspension of the mind, like, hold it, you get caught in this bind. And, th- and then we go, yep, that's exactly where you need to be. <laughs> so, uh, let, let the, you've touched on attachment. And, mm-hmm. um, yes. Uh, and I think I was referring to uh, the attachment that people will have to their ideas mm-hmm. and to uh, their beliefs and their ideals or goals. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people seem to uh, look at attachment and think that they're supposed to give up on desire or to overcome desire, overcome mm-hmm. fear and anger. And mm-hmm. No, it, that is a common mistake or misnomer about um, when, when one of the basic tenets of Buddhism too is that the core of our suffering is chasing, is wanting, craving, is attachment. And so people think I need to get rid of attachment. But that just feeds attachment. <laughs> Some people get attached to being unattached. <laughs> That's right. And so, so it's learning to embrace your attachments, to bring them all in, and just to bring them with you while you proceed through your life. Um, to, to have as, as little, zero resistance to these as, as much as you can. Uh, I, I talk a lot about um, not feeding the bears. Um, if we take a look at the simple story of a grizzly bear, if you fight, flight, or freeze, you feed the bear. And so the bear is our attachments. It's coming to us, you know, and it's, it's going to start to gnaw us. Fear, anxieties, all these things are bears. All phenomenal structures are, are bears. And so if we get caught up, and again, going back to this avoidance or uh, chasing after the good stuff, we actually feed those bears of attachment. And so learning to be present with them actually allows you to be free from them. Actually, you become free from your sense of who you are, who you think you are. So then that raises a very difficult question. Uh, When you ask somebody, who are you? Mm -hmm. Many people start talking about their role in life or Mm -hmm. their relationship to other people or Mm -hmm. uh, where they live or the things that they like. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the sense of who you are, what are we left with when when we accomplish mindfulness? Good question. To answer it with really with, with words is, is really um, not adequate, but we become what we're doing. 
We are what we're doing in this moment. So is it possible to have uh, motivation without a goal? Yeah. And to enjoy that motivation without attachment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's, yeah, definitely. It's uh, going nowhere, being nobody. <laughs> so I, I guess a lot of uh, CEOs of different companies have failed at that, or yeah, some, you know, well, there's really again, there's no failure. There's just um, there's just lots of discoveries that we have to make along the way, and um, again, um, a mindful practice. We try not to say what's what, this is a failure and this is a success because again, we're not trying to achieve anything in particular. And we have to make make sure that's not becomes a goal too, <laughs> right? You know, so as part of it is simply being present and having a, a steady practice. So if I wanted to uh, uh, go through all of the mistakes mm-hmm. of learning mindfulness, what kind of mistakes would I would I tend to make? Um, not practicing every day. Um, a little bit of, of formal formal practice of either sitting or standing, of just quiet time is important. That builds um, resilience in the brain actually, builds a happy brain. And a little bit every day builds what we call power, builds the chi, it builds strength. And then um, throughout the day of, of remaining engaged in what you're doing, and we tend to forget about that. And we get wrapped up in our old sense of who we are, who we think we are, get wrapped up in greed, anger, delusion, all these things. And then we can get lost. But it's not a mistake, it's not a, a failure, it's simply a, a discovery that, oh, I need to come back to here. So you described uh, kind of focusing on your breath mm-hmm. and bringing your breath down inside of yourself to just below your belly button mm-hmm. and continually bringing your attention back to that feeling of breathing deeply inside? Yep, just coming, just, come, just returning. And is there anything else that you work on or focus on? or No, that's about it. In terms, in terms of the formal practice, it's just a following of the breath into the belly and following it out of the belly. And then um, when the mind wanders away from the breath, you just gently bring it back, and then you rest in that. And that's mindfulness. Mindfulness isn't about staying there. It's about recognizing when we've wandered and we come back. Ah, so it's the coming back. It's the coming back is is the mindfulness. So it's not achieving that sustained total awareness. Mm-hmm. It's the art of bringing yourself back. Correct. It's returning home. Okay. Until you discover you're homeless. But we won't go there. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll sound like a crazy man after a while. But yeah, exactly what it is. You're coming back to this, to this home, to the to, to the home of, of the ground of where you're at. And um, so, because the mind always wanders, and so many people I've I've had in my office or talking, and when I've taught classes on meditation, they say, "Oh, I've tried that before. I just can't quiet my mind." So we don't want to quiet your mind. I mean, your mind is na- actually your mind is actually naturally quiet. We just have to you have to allow it to settle down of itself. And um, you, the more you ha- the more you try to quiet your mind, the noisier you actually make it. You're feeding that bear. 
I see. Um, it's sort of like if we had a jar of sand and we poured water into it, and then we started stirring, and it, you know, it's going to get very muddy. And then we figure, okay, I'm going to clear this. I want to see clearly through this jar. So you try to stir faster, <laughs> 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 which is you're just going to continue to have mud. And that's what a lot of people are doing when they're trying to quiet their mind. They're stirring it and stirring it and stirring it because they're trying to achieve something. So they're trying to sort through all of their different ideas and comb them and caress yeah. them. And it just keeps things swirling. It's called samsara, the wheel of suffering. We just keep moving. So we have to stop stirring. Got to pull the stick out and just allow all the sand to fall to the bottom. And then you can see. And that's what being awake is. That's what Buddha means to be awake. Now you can see. And that's what mindfulness allows us to do, is it allows us to wake up, to see. Okay. And to see our patterns, to see where I can make some changes, to see our discoveries, to, see, you know, to, to, to make the changes that we need to make. So would it be fair to say that uh, mindfulness involves not getting caught up in your ideas and fantasies, but simply watching how they operate. Okay, exactly right. You're saying, oh, that's an interesting daydream. Hey, well, come along with me while I go, you know, go back and I got to take the garbage out. So do we eventually yeah. see our frustrations and fears as daydreams? Yeah, they're just sort of things that pop up. They no longer become you. It's almost, it's not a dissociation, but it's a, it's a they're just simply something that's happening around. So you know? those, uh, Fears and frustrations and angers. Uh, uh, you you mentioned uh, don't feed the bears. Mm -hmm. Do these uh, forces have a life of their own within us? It seems that way. Do, they, do you think that they're <laughs> conscious sometimes and figuring out how to get our attention? It feels that way some days, and I wish I you know I can all have speculation, but they feel like that. Um, because it's like, wow, where'd you come from? You know, sometimes you'll have something that'll trigger a, something, a fear from 30 years ago. Oh, I thought you died. You know, you know, you know, so, oh, you know, so oh, come on, <laughs> you know, come along with me while I go con continue what I'm doing. And it's about learning to bring these things with you. And, you know. So rather than build a fence and keeping the bears out, you embrace you them. embrace them, you bring them along but you don't feed them. You don't feed them. You basically are playing dead to them. And you're just allowing them to be here with you. And you have to continue to repeat the, the process because they're not going to disappear magically or run away magically. Um, they'll, they'll st you, know, you, you can have a, um, a bad, you know, a depressed mood stay with you for quite a long time. And, um, but if you continue to bring it with you while you engage in scrubbing your floor, taking out garbage, changing diapers, Eventually, they will fade away, and uh, you'll start to get, you'll get that wake up. Like, oh, you wake up, you see how it moves, you see, you get to that disconnect, and it's amazing. I had a fellow who had severe back pain. Um, and I had like three or four surgeries already on his back. Had a tens unit, and the man couldn't sit still for hardly anything. It was just constant movement. And I was running a pain management group, and. Uh, he had the epiphany first of how all this stuff works. And um, he wrote me a nice letter. He said, Dave, when I first met you and you told me I needed to embrace my pain, I thought you were nuts. But now I know I have something that will help me the rest of my life. 
And because he had this, boom, it just popped into his head of how to watch his bears, how to watch his pain and bring it with him. He was not managing the pain, he was managing his response to the pain, which helped him relax more, which helped him feel more in control. He still had pain, but his suffering reduced. We have the saying in Zen, a pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So we don't manage our fears, we no. don't extinguish them, we don't push them away, mm -hmm. we just choose how we respond to them. Correct. We, and we respond by, oh, hi, come on in, come on in. Okay. We treat them as, as honored guests or little children. You know, it's, you know, sometimes guests and children can be a, a real pain in the side. Yeah. <laughs> but we bring, yeah. them, we bring them in and we take care of them, we nurture them, and eventually they, they cease to be a bother. You know? So in uh, helping people that have been traumatized in the mm -hmm. past, mm -hmm. um, how do you work with, with uh, trauma survivors? A good question. And part of it is, is, bring, is bringing them to just to touch, you know, as, to touch their discomfort, to let that come up if we want to you know, talk about their trauma, but just in a small dose. Just so they get to that edge of discomfort and then have the same process come along with me while I re-engage in this something else I control right here and now in this moment. Ah. So now they're, they're learning to, they're training a new response with inside their, their brain, inside their spirit of like, oh, here's this discomfort, but now I'm going to reroute this and I'm going to go scrub my floor. Ah. And I'm going, to, I'm going to, but just in small doses. So over time, it's simply this trauma, the emotional content of the trauma begins to fade. Okay. And, um, but, and that takes practice. It's, it's, um, but, and that's why groups are important. Mm -hmm. Counseling and coaching is important because there are many pitfalls along the way. Do you yeah. think that people uh, benefit from uh, doing mindfulness practices in a group? Oh, um, big time. Yeah, groups are very important, I think. Yeah. Do you think that sitting still or standing or moving mm -hmm. uh, is better? It depends what the individual likes. I prefer people to start with um, sitting, and then we move to standing, and then we do some gentle movements like in Tai Chi, mm -hmm. because it's important to learn how to take a mindfulness in motion. But the most important thing, first of all, is to find, is learning how to be mindfulness while your body is still while you have a strong structure of just being present and not moving anywhere despite your feelings, despite the sensations, being present. And then from there, once you have your ground in your center, you can begin movement because then you can take that grounding with you while you're moving. It's a basic um, practice we do in the martial arts as well. You know, we, we, we maintain our center you have to practice being centered while somebody's hitting you. <laughs> you know, we have this old, it's a old, old kata, they call it, it's called san chin, means three battles. There's a lot of heavy breathing and stuff, but while you're doing it, you're, you're getting hit. And there's a couple reasons why you do this. One, you're, you're training your body to take a hit, but more importantly, you're training your mind to take the hit and stay here. And so when you do get hit in real life, it's like, it's just a hit. It's not a hit, oh my God, I got hit. It's just a hit. And you stay back on the center. So we're responding in a proper fashion. So we're training, in martial arts, we're training a new response to a tough situation. You can't rely on technique, you have to rely on presence. 
You have to practice your techniques over and over and over, but when the situation arises, you have to be responsive. So uh, when you say we control our response, mm -hmm. I guess you're starting the mindfulness practice by uh, redirecting your attention to the breath and and so it's the redirection of the attention that's the response exactly it's the redirection but it's a gentle redirection it's an engagement of hi come here watch well, me do watch this. me breathe right. watch me do this right not like get the heck out of here pushing away or trying to run away it's oh hi there come here while i go about doing that takes practice so you know? if there are different bears mm -hmm. each wanting to drag your attention off in a different direction mm -hmm. say fear and anger or envy or mm -hmm. shame uh, you just bring them all along bring along just party time yeah just bring i've had people ladies i've one lady took her bears and put them in her purse come on jump in my purse let's go you know, I was for you know people will do things like that they they modify it but right whatever phenomenon arises because they're actually the bears are our, are our allies. They are the healing, and we need to bring. They are the scabs that are showing up to help us heal. Just like um, grief is the scab over the loss, and so we have to grieve. And then over, when the grieving is done, the scab you know the scab has fallen off. But if we keep picking it, it never heals. And so same with depression, anxiety, all these things. I've discovered that they're actually they've been my allies over these years. They're telling me I'm not paying attention properly. So when I, even when I, in, you know, now if I find myself clenching my jaw, or raising my shoulders, oh, thank you. You're helping me realize I'm not paying attention to my center and I get to re-engage. So you cultivate that center not to exclude the bears no. and the thoughts and mm -hmm. the feelings, but to be able to bring them along with you mm -hmm. Uh, without them taking over. Exactly. And you're getting your life done in a nice, quiet, calm fashion. And so this this type of mindfulness practice then cultivates uh, equanimity, a balance between mm -hmm. these different, sometimes contrary desires. Yep. And equanimity arises. It's nothing we need to even cultivate. Is there a yeah. type of mindfulness that can help you to uh, be more alert when you're tired or more relaxed and sleepy when when it's time to sleep. No, you just acknowledge your sleepiness. And go, oh, hi, come along with me, sleepiness, while I continue to engage in what I'm doing. Oh, okay. Because if you try to achieve something, again, you're no longer mindful, now you're fighting. Very good. So what are the most important things you think that we would tell people uh, about mindfulness as we wrap things up here? Uh, simply, again, just to, to make this a really, um, uh, again, just using simple stories of please don't feed the bears and tell to bring things along, to engage them, to, to um, invite all of these things and not to, right, to fight or run. Um, um, I wish I could say it in a quick, easy way, but just simply to be here and rest. Be here and rest. Yeah, just return and rest. Right. So you sort of, uh, instead of pushing away the anger or the fear mm. or the shame, you uh, uh, you let it be there mm -hmm. and be part of you, but you bring your attention back to simply being and being. breathing. Exactly. That's as simple as it gets. And that's that takes practice. 
And the more how, you do how it, how much easier. practice does it take before people start to really feel benefits? I, I f three weeks. I've had people who's you know that are suffering from chronic pain decreases tremendously even after three weeks of practice. Right. Yeah. yeah, you start to get that sense of ooh, something's different. After about three weeks. Yeah, and I start, you start to feel more in control. You start to feel happier. Well, thank you, Dave. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming and talking to us here at Spirit mm. Lake Wellness and oh. being part of our team. Oh, yeah. And, I appreciate um, the honor. I look forward to uh, more of these types of informational sessions where mm -hmm. we explore the mind and how it works. Mm -hmm. And certainly you can uh, leave any comments or questions that you have on our website, and we'll get to them uh, as we can. Thank you.